0: Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode about how the pandemic will change the landscape of children's media features a conversation between Dr. Ellen Wartella and Nancy Cantor. Dr. Wartella is the director of the Center on Media and Human Development at Northwestern University, studying the role of media and technology in children's health and development. Nancy Cantor is the Executive Vice President of Content and Creative Strategy at Disney Channels Worldwide, spearheading the content creation strategy that guides the development of original live action and animated programming. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy.
1: So do you want to go first about uh, what you're doing these days? Sure. Um, background, I guess, is what we're supposed to talk about. Yeah, my background, I've been at Disney
2: for almost uh, 20 years. It will be 20 years in March. And um, I actually had started out and on the production side of, tel- of movies. I was a film editor for many years, working on feature films, and then I made my way um, oddly and unexpectedly, uh, to Sesame Street, where I was worked on some of the projects there as an executive producer for about five years, and then took up my role at Disney Channel, um, in particular focusing for the first part of my career on preschool programming and really built the business for Disney that uh, was primarily aimed at kids two to five. We um, created uh, some uh, series that have gone on to sort of be somewhat um, culture changing. We I developed a show Doc McStuffins, which was an African American girl, little girl who was the lead. She was the she wanted to be a doctor like her mom, and she uh, took up being doctor to broken toys and stuffed animals. It became quite a a, a phenomenon both in the entertainment world, but also did an enormous amount to um, highlight uh, people of color and to really focus on um, giving them some inspirational. Um, uh, models and look at the way that uh, little girls in particular could look at being, becoming involved in science and med- medical uh, medicine. And then uh, about three years ago, I, I um, added to my plate of uh, preschool by taking on the live action and animation content at Disney Channels that's aimed at s- sort of kids 6 to 11. We do series, we do movies, we do animated shows. And essentially my job, sometimes I I kind of laugh and sort of have to pinch myself because essentially my job is just giving my opinion to people about what kinds of shows we should be making, um, what is the content strategy for them, how are they both serving um, an need and a content need but also serving the business need at Disney channels and at the Disney company. So uh, pretty much every creative decision that, goes into what we put on the air flows through me at one point or another. I obviously have teams of executives who handle the the day in the day out, but um, at the end, of the day, you know, they look to me and say, "Should we do this or should we not do this?" Um, I come at it, um, and that's why I'm so happy to sort of be part of this uh, this virtual conversation because I really come at it from a storyteller's perspective. That's where my my heart is, that's where I started as a film editor. You're really looking at story and performance and um, how do you tell the story the best way possible in sound and, and pictures. And so I look at everything from that, very much that storyteller's perspective, even though now my, my job and my title seems to indicate some um, a different kind of role as an executive. But um, if it doesn't speak to me from a story perspective, uh, it's, it's very hard for me to, to necessarily do my job well. So... In a nutshell, that's that's kind of what I what I do on a day to day basis.
1: Um, give a lot of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I do is give a lot of opinions too. <laughs> um, well, I've been in the same. Um sort of place since I was in graduate school. I started doing research as a graduate student at the University of Minnesota many decades ago. Um, and my work since then and has always been sort of um, uh, the same sort of work. I do research at the nexus of public questions about media and technology in children's lives. Uh, developmental psychology, what do we know about children of different ages and how they make sense of different kinds of content and programming, and and media studies, what do we know about the way different kinds of technologies and media present information and influence children? So uh, right now, I'm at Northwestern University. I've been at other universities. I've been somewhat peripatetic, but I've always been doing research in that area. Uh, Right now, I run a center on media and human development, and I have some research grants studying um, a variety of things, um, STEM education and whether how you get children interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, particularly young children, and some work on social media with adolescents is what I'm doing right now. But over the years, I've studied such public questions, starting off with the role of advertising and how advertising influences young children's uh, behavior. And so very early on, I was, in fact, it was a heady experience. As a first-year assistant professor, I testified at the Federal Trade Commission hearings on um, the... Uh, role of of advertising in children's lives. And that's when the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, had recommended banning all advertising to children too young to understand advertising's persuasive influence. And that was based on my research. So that was the work that I had done as a graduate student with my advisor, Dan Wackman. From there, a little bit later, I got involved in the TV violence studies when the National Cable Television Association in the late 90s hired a Um, violence monitor, and I was part of the research team. There were four universities involved, UCSB, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and at the time I was at the University of Texas. And we were the monitor for um, uh, looking at how violence was portrayed throughout cable television, and we had to testify several times at congressional hearings um, about that topic. And that led to actually holding, having the um, the different kinds of um, what are those things called that tells you what's coming up? The the rating system that. We were involved in evaluating that and using that. So then I got involved in the violence studies and then moving into the, into the early 2000s, in the middle of the 2000s with the rise of the uh, childhood obesity ep- epidemic, I went back to one of my earlier studies and began looking at the role of food marketing in the rise of childhood obesity it continues to be a problem. So I was involved with the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences, ran some, some, pr- um, some meetings for them and some investigations. And looked again at how really the kinds of foods that we market to children is really having an impact on on the rise of obesity over the last 20 or 30 years. And recently I've gotten involved, as I said, in STEM concerns because we're a country that is trying to raise the profile of uh, getting more children interested in science and technology and how can tech media help do that. So I've been working with four to seven year olds actually in ways using apps and television shows and a whole variety of mechanisms to see if we can encourage their interest in science and math. Um, And just one little tidbit there, it's really interesting, parents even of these young children feel very comfortable teaching math, but are very anxious about teaching science. And so we have to, as a social scientist, I think it's interesting that we have to go a bit further in explaining that. All that said, it means that now that we're in this COVID crisis and we have a social issue at the table, that's sort of been the area that I've worked in over the years. I am advisor to, I've been an advisor to a lot of different uh, organizations. I was on the Sesame Street board for 20-some years, went off about two years ago, Um, and I've been on the boards of other television shows as advisors and lots of advisory groups, but I'm really an academic and researcher and have continued to do research all in the area of children and media.
2: Well, we have lots lots of overlap in in ways. We work with, obviously, um, experts like yourself and academics, um, most especially on the preschool side although we certainly, from time to time, on some of the older, when we have a specific area that we know we're trying to target or a specific issue that we're we're trying to get the best information as we possibly can, we work with, with lots of people. And I know our paths have, have crossed distantly, but now finally in person. So it's, it's yeah. great. Um, I, I mean, I would just say, you know, I know that the theme of us changing landscape, and I think none of us, certainly I didn't, I'm not a science fiction reader, so, I have to say, I never in a million years imagined we would be finding ourselves in this situation that we're in. Um, apparently, though, science fiction writers have been writing about it and predicting it for decades, which yep. is interesting. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you just because you, you've you been in this space of, you know, great social and cultural landscape change. What do you think is what what are you looking at in terms of your research next and how to approach what we know is going to be sort of just a a long-lasting and fundamental way, especially for children, as they look at the world.
1: That's a good question. I, th- I think there's a, a lot of um, concern about how our children are going to cope with it and how our adolescents are going to cope with it. Um, I'm not, I don't have a, a crystal ball to see into the future, but I think, that the experience for however long it lasts of families and kids being in front of screens a lot, which they are right now, their home and screens are not the enemy by any means. Screens are their access to their friends, to their schooling, to their families outside, to their sense of the world. Um, That I think we're going to view screens and screen use differently after this. I think that that there's going to be an, an expanded role of using technology um, for a whole host of, of, of uh, ways, including education and communication and information. And it's going to be a multiplicity of screens. It's not just going to be television and it, it's not just going to be the, um, the tablets or 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 the phone, but it'll be a multiplicity of things. And I suspect that after this, that that the much of the criticism about screens in young children's lives is going to be muted because it's not screens per se that's the problem with young children. It's what content are they engaging in? And can you provide things other than screen use? You know, doing anything for the seven or eight hours that kids are awake or 12 hours is not healthy. So you have to have some limits. But I think we're going to view screens differently. And and then for you, uh, the question is what kind of content that will provide that will help children cope with the changed world that they have? I mean, um, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't have all the answers, but maybe you'd like to speculate a little bit about that too. What do you think will be changing content as a consequence of this COVID experience?
2: Yeah, I mean, we were obviously, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about that. Um, And a couple of things. One is, I think we felt, especially on the Disney Channel side, which targets those kids sort of six and up, are very aware of what's going on. Preschoolers have some sense, but, you know, they're they're pretty sheltered other than maybe not going to preschool and being home a lot more. But we felt we had, you know, a certain responsibility to address it for our audience who we know looks to Disney Channel, whether they're watching it on YouTube or they're watching it linearly or they're watching it on our um, digital apps. They're looking for some um, information, and looking for more more than information. They're looking for us for sort of support and comfort. That's always been the place that I think our our brand and our channel has really thrived is feeling um, part of their world in that sense of of security and.
1: Security. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, Disney is is in my mind one of the one of the um, companies that has done the best for taking care of children and its content.
2: And sometimes, you know, it's it's interesting because you have that, you have to make that choice of, do we pretend like everything is fine and just give you the nice, feel-good message, or do we hit that, hit the message on the head, and do we really sort of talk very clearly and, and out front about it? And Disney has typically been, when there have been things like 9-11 or Katrina or other kinds of, you know natural disasters. We tended not to talk about them explicitly, but rather talk, talk through the message of community, responsibility, family. In this case, and I'll, I'll, I'll screen for the group and for you, we felt we had to sort of add it a little more specifically and deliberately um, because we knew this was just something that, you know, our audience and in fact the world had never experienced before. There wasn't a way to sort of soft pedal that. So in, uh, in the first week, we went out to all of the talent um, on our series, and we asked them to just self-tape something that would be um, a message of, you know, encouragement, we're all in this together, which is the phrase we keep hearing, mm-hmm. so that kids had a sense of community um, with, our, with our talent, and that we were here recognizing what they were going through. It proved, you know, very effective, we obviously track a lot of things on Instagram, and just Seeing those familiar faces that they're used to seeing in our shows, reassuring them and saying, hey, I'm sitting home just like you. Here are some tips. You know, I'm taking long walks with my dog. I'm trying to do exercise. I'm listening to music was something that we, the feedback we got was um, tremendously helpful. So I just thought for the for the audience, if you wanted to see it's just a quick less than a minute clip.
0: Hi everyone, it's Scarlett. Hey guys, Albert here. It's Ramon Reed here. I just wanted to let you guys know that we can get through this. It's about us coming together and lifting each other up.
3: Check in on your friends and see how they're doing this during this time. Stay in contact with your friends by
0: video chatting or calling them.
3: And My best friend especially we will call each other and um, on FaceTime and we'll watch movies together. We'll just count to three and then we'll like press play at the same time and we'll watch the movie together and that's been helping a lot.
0: I have a really good friend named Sophia that I've been able to FaceTime and it's made me feel a lot better about the situation.
3: We're going to get through this and definitely come out with stronger relationships.
0: We're all in this together.
3: Be kind to each other and we can get through this.
1: Well, I'm glad that you chose to be much more explicit about it. I think this is an instance where the six and up really do know something's different and to not label it and not talk about it, not... um, comfort them but make them understand that we are all experiencing the same thing that that they're not alone is a really important message for, for six and up really yeah. very important we, we,
2: we felt you know that you couldn't ignore it
0: hi listeners we hope that you're enjoying this episode of the scholars and storytellers podcast if you like what you're hearing please rate and review us and share it with your friends your support is greatly appreciated now back to the conversation we don't know how long we might be wearing masks.
2: We don't know how long you're going to have to practice some amount of social distancing, what um, events and activities are going to resume and what won't. And so how do we begin to think about the, the writing of stories going forward? If you were predicting that there might be one thing, who knows? So it's a it's a tough ongoing conversation for us, which is do we address it Knowing that our timelines for production are usually anywhere from, you know, six to 18 months. And in the case of animated shows, it's even three years from the time you're actually writing something to the time it will hit the air or be on a screen somewhere. How do you begin to um, look at the things that we're writing and how do we predict what we're going to have to not only talk about, but what it's going to look like? I have to say, as I'm watching some television um, now, when I see two people in a show hug each other or I see a big crowd scene, I go, oh, wait a minute. Because even at this moment, this early stage, it feels like we're not, we can't do that. And how will we, we begin to sort of create those stories that are going to feel not, again, sort of blind to the fact that we've gone through this, but will also represent where are we? Um, a year and a half from now, in terms of our social interactions, in terms of how COVID has impacted us. And for kids in particular, where the stories tend to fall into sort of one of two categories, one is fantasy, where you go to a, you know, a fantasy world, and there you can take a lot more liberty because you're not in the real world. A lot of our content on Disney Channel Uh, for the older kids is very grounded. It's schools, it's home, it's outdoor activities where it really feels grounded and very much of the moment. So we are wrestling with um, trying to predict something that we just frankly don't know. But my instinct is that we are going to have to address it on an ongoing basis and in the way that Disney would not necessarily write a show about covid but we're going to have to start to, to reference some of the changes that I think will are going to be significant and, and long-lasting. So that is... Yeah, I, I
1: would... I would think about it in two ways. That that there are issues about COVID that might be taken up in the central part of the narrative. Are you going to tell a story about coping in a post-COVID world? Um, and that is a very um, message-oriented, where you want to get your facts straight, and you want, but you but you can tell the story of a family or kids and how they're coping and what they're personal life is like. So that's kind of central. But then I understand what you're saying is that there's the surrounding, the more incidental, uh, less central information, how you present the world, how you present people meeting when they gather, how you present going out to restaurants or what's available. I mean, are we going to no longer have buttons to push on elevators, but we'll use our elbows? Uh, Handshakes are going to go out the window. And so there's those incidental expressions of the changes in social and cultural life. And boy, who knows what that's going to go. But I mean, it, it seems to me that those are two different issues. Will Will Disney take on the, the centrality of of helping children realize the differences in, in their world and how they cope or how families or different age groups of children, different kinds of, um, of careers cope um, and institutions cope versus this more presentation of the world that we look pretty different and and don't know exactly all the way that is. So you do have an issue, don't you? And part of the presentational part is
2: we know just from the way we produce shows, we will have to produce them differently, right? The notion of of when, if we go back into production in the fall or the winter, chances are, you know, those scenes of, you know, a hundred kids in a hallway, you know, a big dance, uh, you know, in in a gym, sporting events, the things that we typically represent because they're part of kids' lives, we just literally physically won't be able to shoot that because nobody's going to bring 300 extras to sit in bleachers or sit in a you know, school gymnasium. Okay. So I think that will all just impact how we write. And then in terms of the, the sort of more centralization of, of including the story, it's, it's interesting. We were at work before um, the, the pandemic hit on a series where it sort of goes back and forth in time between current modern day girl um, experiencing what 12, 13 year olds do and flashing back her father's days as a teenager in the 90s and sort of comparing and contrasting um, sort of their experiences. He's a single dad raising his daughter, who sometimes is just a little too much like he was when he was his rebellious 12 year old self. And their grandmother lives with them as well. And we were at work about a story that eerily sort of echoes what happened to us, which is there's a, in the present day, um, something happens in the world that causes sort of things to stop and be put on hold for our lead girl. And we, we, we were flashing back to talk about some of the events that happened, 9-11, which happened for the father when he was, when he was young going further back for the grandmother, which I think is an interesting way to approach for kids, again, giving them that perspective and comfort. Yes, this is extraordinary, and maybe certainly, certainly once in a lifetime, if not once in a, you right. know, a century, but there is some perspective. This has happened before. We have had these sort of tragedies and, and, and challenges and um,
0: come out the other
2: side. Um, so that's that's one of the ways that we're we're looking at trying to frame up these central issues, but in a way that feels right again for us. I'm sorry, near you. Um,
1: uh, there, uh, there was a question for Nancy, but it, it, it could you uh, do you anticipate any co- sort of content developed specifically aimed towards children's understanding of the COVID crisis? Um, will you take it on very specifically? Is the question? Yeah, I think that
2: that's under discussion. I think that's what you and I've been, you know, sort right. of batting around is, you know, how specific will we take it on? Um, again, in the sort of more of the public service announcement format that we, we, I just showed that clip for, we've taken it on very specifically. I think our instinct is to um, find again, because of what the Disney brand represents is unlikely. We might do an episode. I don't think we would build, um, multiple episodes in every series around it or a movie around it. Again, I think as we were talking, you know, people think of us, us as that safe release from yeah. what the, the, yeah. the stresses and strains of, of every day is. On the other hand, we don't want to look like we're putting our head in the sand and pretending like, Oh no, everything's fine. And that, that's our challenge when you have a brand like Disney.
1: But you could take on sort of the, the social emotional needs of the kids yes. who have gone through it. So Absolutely. you can take on how you deal with stress, yes. how you deal with um, living in a, a, in a much more small society where you can't move around quite as much or not travel. Yes. So you can take on the kind of stressors that the children are feeling, even if you don't explicitly say it's because of COVID, you just take on Absolutely. those stressors. that and there it, it also strikes me that another thing I love that show idea that you have of going back that there have been other periods where kids had had to go through experiences um, all the way back to uh, World War II or 9/11. I, I think that's great. It also strikes me that, that do hearken back that are historical that present a different world with its pressures that may be very different from the pressures of today could also be instructive for kids that way. Some historically situated programs.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. I think there's, again, that gives us the license to still feel safe and yet also address the issue in a way that you don't have to yeah. Think that hard to say? Oh, wait a minute! Like what we're going through now, but it gives you a little bit of that distance for a kid, so that it doesn't quite feel so uh, such uh, uh, sort of so onerous to say. Oh my God, that's us. That's you know us sheltering, and we're also looking at um, in more in short form than in long form, continuing to do things that really partly because we can only shoot things at the moment virtually. So you know, you do have two actors on two different screens, but. Looking again at sort of the, the positive way, we we had done a a series uh, last year, which was, were sort of sleepovers with a couple of kids, uh, our cast, where they 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 were in the same space and they did the typical kind of things that girls do when they have you know weekend sleepovers. And we're looking at how do we do that and say it's and do it in a virtual way. So well, we can't be together in your you know in your den, but we're going to have a virtual sleepover, which again sort of references why we can't be together but yet um also bring some fun and and lightness to it so i think there's a question for you ellen from a developmental standpoint where is the line between what pandemic content is developmentally appropriate and inappropriate so
1: well um for any age child and for adults as well, fear mongering is not what you want. So when you present any of the content in a, in a way that is frightening without um, some sort of, um, Way of assuaging that frightening—that's not helpful to anyone. Um, the message, really, I, I think there are a few messages that 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 we're all in this together. That it is something we can manage. Kids need to hear that, even the young children. That um, we're we we do not know what's going to happen. I, I think you have to be honest, even with the young children, um, to say that we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think I think it is never developmentally appropriate to lie to your children. Even the young ones. If if we don't know, we should say that. And I think that it's appropriate for parents, even though they don't want to say it, to say that they don't know what's going to happen and they're doing their best to cope. Um, and then when and then one of the most important things, particularly with the young kids, is to hold them when you say these things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's to, frighten, it's to comfort them physically. Um, is there something that's inappropriate other than the fear mongering? I really think that's the only thing I would I would stress as being. Inappropriate, And of course, um, it's always hard to talk about if there are people who are sick in your family or, or friends that you know, it's always difficult to talk about death and illness. And so COVID is not any different in that sense. And um, you have to be honest with children then that they won't see their friends. They won't be able to see them. I remember when Sesame Street did that wonderful program about Mr. Hooper's death. And here they were talking to four and five-year-olds about death and did it quite eloquently and um, in a way that the children understood. So even the worst aspects of this of the COVID virus, of the incredible uh, number of fatalities that we have over it i think we have to be honest with our children and talk about it in, in a way that is um I, i'm sorry about that uh, i'm sorry i'm on yeah got rid of it that was my sister-in-law <laughs> sorry about that um so i i think that's the only thing that isn't developmentally appropriate is to ever lie to children uh, do you agree with me with that nancy
2: no absolutely um i the, the lying to children for sure the mother of three it sometimes you want to lie to your um and um I, yes i mean that's i think what we what we all want without being um duplicitous or misleading or naive but we all want to feel hopeful right you want to see that that there's some sense of optimism of that yes this is tough this is going to hit a lot of people in many different ways you know, not only just the, the terrible impact, obviously, if somebody loses, if you lose somebody close to you, but, you know, for our audiences and, and the world at large, the impact of being out of work, the impact well, of the financial stress. stresses, these are things that, you know, do trickle down even to the youngest kids. They know when, when things are not right, um, you know, in, in, from a financial stability perspective and, and the kids who are already in at-risk groups. Um, in terms of that so I mean that's I feel like that's
1: and we shouldn't point out I mean the data that just came out this week that one-fifth of American children are hungry and are not getting the kind of nutrition so um, children are suffering so it's not just talking about COVID it's actually helping them cope with the incredible stressors in their life that have to do with the economic situation and I'm I'm really concerned about the issue about hung, about, about hunger and young kids, whether they're going to get what they need in terms of of um, nutrition. And and are, will we step up as a society to take care of these children? Yeah, no, absolutely.
2: Um, I think there's a question for me saying what kinds of character strengths should we focus on in our storytelling in a post covid world? Would resilience or independence be good ones to focus on? Um, resilience for sure I think that's you know something that we have looked at in storytelling for kids long before COVID obviously it is I think there's Ellen you probably know better than certainly I do the research around resilience for kids and you know the impact that that has long term on their success and and their, their uh, abilities to thrive so it's something we've we've always sort of um, tried to model uh, the I think the best thing that you know children's content does is to model the behaviors that you hope kids will bring into their own lives um, yeah. so absolutely I, I feel like resilience flexibility um you know that ability to 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 change depending on what's happening and what's in front of you and not feel stuck in a particular um, sort of routine and a a, a particular point of view. Uh, Those are
1: certainly things. Um, And I think Mistakes and you have failures, but you can have successes after failures. That's the resiliency issue. And that children have to learn that. That that even adults, we all make mistakes. We all, we all have to pick ourselves up and move on. Yeah. And children are resilient, fortunately. Very, we're very lucky there that they are. But yeah, we we do need to take that on. And Disney does that very well, I must say. Yes. I agree.
2: And I think the other piece is compassion. I mean, in terms of, you know, when we look at for this moment in time, for sure, just being having that compassion, having that empathy for the people who maybe are not quite as lucky and have been as, as safe as we are, uh, I feel like those are that's an important value that we should be modeling all the time, but especially now when we know that there are going to be so many millions of people who, in fact, are are really stressed and hurting from the the impact of all of this. Um, sometimes, you know, especially older. Kid programming can sometimes, the characters can sometimes, you, you get the mean girl, you get the mean click, right. you get the the who's bully. Cool not, the bully. Um, and so, yes, that, those are realities. And and that, I think, also goes to, you know, not necessarily lying or sugarcoating things for your kids, because you're going to have to deal with that. There's going to be a bully. There's going to be somebody who's not nice to you, but really paying attention to what the response to that is and where you get your strength from and how your community, how your family, how your friends sort of react and rally around you um, is is really important. And to show that sort of empathetic um, side to, to kids who don't always naturally come across as empathetic, especially when you're talking about high school and middle school.
1: I also think that the the extent to which COVID and this experience is, make, is um, making, but is allowing and encouraging and indeed enabling families to be together, that the whole issue of how families interact is something that should be taken up afterwards and that there are many different kinds of families and sorts of families and what it means to be, to rely on families. I think um I think we're experiencing a difference in terms of recent family life from family life 20, 30 years ago, and in a post-COVID world, family life may be different as well. Great.
2: Question for you, Ellen.
1: Yes. What,
2: What advice would you give to parents who are trying to use media to both entertain and educate their children while they are unable to attend school?
1: Well, first of all, please don't be afraid of those screens that your kids are attending to, whether it's on their iPad or the television or on phones, wherever it is. Um, there is nothing inherently wrong with screens so long as they're doing things more than just attending to screens all day long. And I, and I understand if they're spending a lot of time on Zoom or on Google Uh, schools because they're, they're doing everything online for their schools over the next month or two while they're still in school that you want to limit the amount of time they use it for entertainment, but I really think that's something you should negotiate. And depending on the age of the child, the negotiations could be differently. So the first rule is, yes, they're attending the screens. Don't be hysterical about a parent, it's okay. Screens aren't inherently bad, it depends on what they're doing with it. To, um do try to negotiate how much time they're going to spend, and if they're spending four or five hours a day on um, doing educational materials, well, you don't want them spending another four or five hours a day doing entertainment. And if you're dealing with an adolescent, that's something that you should set a, a family negotiation about, that you'll say you can have another two hours or whatever it is. And remember, screens are not just entertainment. Uh, kids need them to get in touch with their friends. If they're not seeing their friends in schools or they're seeing their, they're not seeing their friends on the on the outside on the playground, then they have to have an opportunity for social, social time. I think the real issue is you know your child as a parent. So you need to judge your child. The younger the child, the more limited time they should spend on screen, certainly under age six. Uh, middle school children, that's when the development of their social life is really important, so they probably want to spend some time, you know, not just on schooling, but also having some social experiences on screens And adolescents, Well, by then, you're into a, a whole <laughs> other world of peer relations. Um, some things that I would limit, I would limit no screens around mealtime so that they ha- you have time with the family. No screens at night when they go to bed. Nothing in the in their bedrooms, or at least an hour before they go to bed. And trying to make sure that every day there's family time that is not screen re- screen related. To do things, go out, read a book if it's a young child, take a walk with your child, play um, with a ball in the backyard if you have a backyard, so that you have time that's other than just screen time. But um, we this is not the moment to beat ourselves up about keeping very strict limits of how much time uh, your child can spend on screens, because it's one of the ways that we're accessing the world right now. We should all be happy that we have this opportunity. Otherwise we would be extraordinarily isolated as unfortunately some people are.
2: No, absolutely. Um, And I am just, I'm so heartened because so many people are reaching out to talk about how they are spending time as a family and, you know, teenagers you know certainly you know tend to run up to their room get on their phone and you know you don't see them except maybe if they come down for dinner but um it seems that families are are sort of interacting in ways that they wouldn't ordinarily and so and not just the parents are appreciative of it but the kids are appreciative
1: they're cooking together they're playing board games together they're talking together they're they're doing sports together doing a lot more things as a family um which is really quite healthy so i think there will be a change in in the social life of families as a as a consequence of this that we've dis- we've rediscovered uh, the joy of family life
2: you sort of needed the push and and the excuse to sort of Disengage from everything that we were um, sort of pr- programmed to believe was the way families interact. I think people just have a, have a chance to um, reassess, like, how do we want to behave as a family? And what do we... What do we there, was
1: of- a, there was a question for both of us. Uh, what other historical events are comparable to the pandemic in affecting both content and media use by children? Well, 9-11 was somewhat con- com- comparable, I would say, wouldn't you? Yes.
2: Yeah. I I have to say, you know, and I've been in this business for 25 years, I don't think anything has ever affected us clearly in the way that this has, you know, with 9-11 or Katrina or Hurricane Sandy. It was localized. Um, Not that we didn't know about it, obviously, if you didn't live in New York or or New Orleans, but there was a way where it it, it both didn't feel like it impacted and hit you that um, specifically if you didn't live in one of those areas. And it seemed like it would be over. There was a way to say, you know what, we'll rebuild, there will be impact, but we will come out of this and life may not change that much, except if you were very, very specifically and personally impacted, you lost somebody in, in one of those those um, events. This, I think, whether or not you've lost somebody, whether or not you know, you're know you in New York or in a place that's been less affected, I think it will change us in ways that I don't think we've ever seen, certainly in this this century, um, you know, maybe going back to the, you know, the, the, uh, pandemic in the, of 1918, but that was a different world entirely. So, um, I, I think there is not just, I don't, and I don't mean this in a necessarily a nihilistic or pessimistic way, but I don't think there's any turning back from this. I think what the choices that we're going to be making going forward in terms of content in many ways will be, will have to be impacted by who we are, What's happened to us? How our business goes forward, and what stories we want to tell, and how we want to um, talk about it with kids.
1: Well, historians have certainly talked about the, how the 1918 pandemic and World War One fundamentally changed women's roles, for instance, um, and um, and expectations about how you lived your life and you went out beyond the family. Uh, in the same way, the Second World War uh, had a difference in the way we thought about education for women and men, for jobs, for all kinds of things that came into our lives that we didn't expect. And I agree with you. I know um, those were uh, traumatic events, p- for sure. Um, but but this somehow is different. Be in the in sense, the pandemic went on, and we didn't know when it was going to end. But this uh, sheltering in place, the closing down of the economy, you know, I do wonder what kind of impact this is going to have on today's children, and what what concerns they're going to have as they grow older of what things they think will be possible, what things they will want to affect, and what things they will think will be less possible. And I, I again, I, I can't predict what that's going to be like, but I'm, I know there'll be lots of people wanting to study it. And lots of people like you, Nancy, will want to make stories uh, and narratives to help both the adults and the growing children cope with that new world, but it's going to be different. I, I absolutely agree. It's going to be different. I know in my own profession, universities are going to be quite different. Absolutely. Uh,
2: I I guess the cohort that I sort of feel the most for in some ways are the, those high school seniors and those college seniors who are missing out on those milestones that, you know, whether or not you went to the senior prom or you loved going to the senior prom or, you, you know, your graduation, those are real imp- important milestones in your life and not only missing them, but also not having any certainty of what's next. Am I going to go to that college that I was dying to go to and got accepted? Is it going to be real classes or online classes? I've graduated. I put myself for many of them in, you know, gigantic debt to you know, complete college what are my options for, for you know, a job that I think that generation is, is yeah. truly going to have a psychological shift about how they see
1: the world. I, I agree. And it's this disruption in um, our ability to plan on on what we expect to be the social life we're going to have, what we expect to be the milestones. If we can't plan for those, what are we going to be planning for? Um, and and the... the um, the ways in which your your hopes and plans for the future, your expectations are going to change, and we don't know how. Yeah. Exactly.
2: So, I have a question from Sam on the Youth Council Will streaming become more mainstream? Will box office movies go directly to houses? Will movie theaters go out of business? Wow, well, if I had all of those answers, Sam, they would pay me a lot more money. Um, but, I, I The first one I would say is um, I don't think movie theaters are going to go out of business. I know personally I crave the experience of being in a theater and seeing a movie with other people. Um, And I feel like that is something that community, that collegiality, the going into hearing an audience laugh at a movie or hearing the sniffles at the end of an emotional movie. I think people will still want to do that. I think it will be very different, um, certainly until we have the protocols and the safety and the, uh, that we can gather in that larger group. Um, and it may take us a while, so you may not be sitting right next to a stranger. But I think that that desire to, to have community around art in one way or another is, is something that's pretty deep seated in all of us
1: point out that in the 50s early 50s in particular 40 when television came along and it became uh, the majority of households by the late 50s, there was much speculation that movies would go away because people could watch everything at home. And that never happened because you're absolutely right. The experience of movie going is a social communal experience and we don't have enough of those in many ways in the society. so I think you're right it, but it the physically how we do it may change um, exactly. I, I don't think I don't think it'll go away either. Yeah. And I
2: think one, you know, one of the things that this particular, you know, experience has given us, it's really put into relief how much how much we have given up on some ways on that sort of social interaction and become more isolated. And now you're sort of craving that connection again. Um, I, I know for myself, you know, I'm talking to friends on a more reliable basis. We're doing it via Zoom calls instead of just sending a text, you know, every couple of weeks, hey, how are you doing? I'm making an effort because I'm I'm craving that, that social connection. Streaming, um, you know, I think streaming was on its way to becoming the preferred method of consuming content on a screen at home well before this. We've certainly right. seen that in the television, you know, linear mm-hmm. landscape, just where the audience was moving. Young people are obviously have moved and are continuing to move in droves to not just the um, – streaming services, but YouTube and the accessibility of, of that. So I think that was the path it was going. This will probably accelerate it to some extent, but I think it was already on its way to um, very deliberately moving in that way.
1: Yeah, so social science and scientists in me wants to say that I just did uh, this year uh, focus group in, with 60 adolescents, 13 to 17. And I asked them about television, not one of those kids watch television on a television set. Yeah. And they don't watch over-the-air broadcast TV. They're watching things, as you said, on YouTube. They're live streaming it. They're on Netflix, on their on their iPads. And I thought that was really interesting. How do we normalize failure is the question. I'll let you take that one. <laughs> well, you know, I think that we have to, I think failure is always a part of our lives, and it's definitely a part of growing up. Um, I don't know that we, uh, I don't know that humans want to normalize it, but we certainly have to cope with it. And uh, perhaps through this, we'll be coping with it um, a little bit more vocally than we have in the past. So one thing is you talk about failure, you don't ignore it. Um, you support Kids who are going through failure experiences by giving them, telling them how you made it through other experiences, giving them, having helping them think through how they'll get through it. Um, I don't know that that's normalizing it because um, we don't want to fail, but we all do. And so we just have to find good ways of accepting that failure is a part of living um, and we all have to learn to cope with it. So uh, in fact, isn't it the case that many narratives where children do deal with failures that are overcome? That's that's kind of an arc <laughs> in many of the children's stories, yes?
2: Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of that resilience um, and the grit. To to We do, we put kids from a story perspective in situations where they're not going to succeed the first time and they might not succeed the second time, where they have to cope with losing the sport event, not getting the whatever it is they wanted, um, you know, trying and failing. And Right. And right. as we talked about, sort of the modeling of having that tenacity to try again to not let it crush you—you—you—you you, 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 you feel it, and you know you don't want to say, "Oh well, too bad." But you know to to model that—you um, know theres isn't—you can move beyond the failure and look toward a, a success. I think is something.
1: There is a lot of research in learning sciences about the importance of grit of really working to try to get through things. Could I have that question again? It says, "What kinds of psychological research?" Is going to be most important to storytellers
2: in planning content surrounding this pandemic. Um, from the story, to, I, I think you know many of the things, Ellen, that you're involved in, and, and I, you know, definitely want to stay in touch and hear what your, your research <laughs> tells. Because I think what will be very helpful is um, hearing about what the impact of this is on the emotional stability and the emotional outlook of kids and. How, um, how much do they want to talk about it? How much do they want to put it behind them? How much information do they need to make them feel safe again? Um, I think those are issues that I can see sort of needing to really understand so that as we're crafting stories, we, we know what the right levers are and what the right tonality is for, for us you know, tone is almost as important as narrative, sort of, you can, you can tell a specific story in many different ways with various different tones. And obviously, the Disney tone is to be hopeful and optimistic, without Mm -hmm. necessarily being, you know, um, mindful of reality. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, I, you know, I think that the, um, the growth of what's been called uh, tough topic television, tough topic Programming for kids, 13 Reasons Why was an example of that in the last few years of dealing with issues like um, suicide um, uh, in a a teenage adolescent show, opened the door for much more explicit, um, tough topics. And I think the COVID, post COVID world is going to be a tough topic that we have to deal with. And we'll deal with it differently for the younger children, the middle schooler and the adolescent. But um, being hopeful is what all of those, that kind of programming is. And we know that, that tough topics, adolescents in particular want to talk about those things. They want to, they want to talk about those issues. Going back to that uh, focus group that I ran with these 60 kids, I was shocked by how many of the kids, the adolescents in our um, interviews, almost, uh, um, I'd say 15, 20% uh, had known somebody who either attempted suicide or Committed suicide. And the lives that they were describing was a pretty tough life. And it's not just that schooling's hard, but the world for adolescents, the world for kids today is a hard world. Yeah. Tough
2: world. Um, We got, I think, what's going
3: to probably be um, the last question. Hi, you guys. (laughs) This last question and wrap it up. Um, okay. Thank you. You've both been amazing, and we've learned a lot, and it's, it's wonderful to know that two people in both of your fields care so much about the health and well-being of young people. Um, one of our last questions comes from our, someone from our youth council named Sophia. Um, and it's, I think it's a nice way to wrap it up because often we have a lot of students and other people watching our, um, live streams. So she says, at what part in your life did you realize this was the career path you wanted to take? And then I'm just going to add, because I know once somebody in the youth council asked this. They also said in, in, in particular, be in the boss, (laughs) 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 you guys want to become the boss and realize that was what you wanted to do.
2: Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take it first. Um, always wanted to be the boss. you can, (laughs) my, my mother about that. (laughs) My father was still alive. He, he said, you never really were much of a child. You always were a little adult, but, um, I, I didn't not know that I would land here as, as a sort of network television executive. That was definitely never in my, my life plan. It, it happened quite serendipitously in some ways. But I knew from a pretty early age, I, I was always a giant reader. I loved books. I'd sit in the library for, you know, hours at a time. Um, and then made my first movie when I was in the seventh grade um, with a 16-millimeter camera that my dad had. And it was a a very deep and um, powerful anti-war movie. <laughs> um, it was... Um, that featured that starred my three-year-old brother at the time. So,
3: um, I think there's a screening in our future. <laughs> I,
2: I knew that I wanted to be, um, I, I knew I wanted to tell stories. I didn't know that I wanted to tell them for kids. Um, and that's not where my, my career started. But I knew that I would be a storyteller in some way from a, from a pretty early age. Um, and then the career path to here is is is. We would need a whole other hour chat for me to discuss
1: that. Well, I, I had um, I I knew I wanted to do research when I once I went to graduate school. I, I wanted to be an actress early in my life. So I did a little theater when I was in high school and I had dance classes and singing classes. And I went off to college as a theater major to the University of Pittsburgh and discovered within my first quarter that I wasn't as good as some of the other kids who were in that program. And I was pretty bookish compared to them. Mm-hmm. And, Oh, I got out of theater very quickly because I didn't want to do anything I couldn't be great at. And then I wanted to be a community organizer. And I actually went to graduate school just to get a master's degree in communication to learn how to manipulate the press if I was going to become a community organizer. But instead, I got involved in research my first term there, decided to get a Ph.D. and never looked back. And I'm very lucky that I love what I do.
3: That's one most important part. And just as a personal question, um, Nancy, like, do, how do, and it particularly, why do you think content creators who make content for six and up don't use research as much? And yeah. what are the ways that we can encourage them to see us uh, as a support system, as a way to um, really understand? I know, I love that you asked, um, how do we uh, you know, understand the emotional needs of youth moving mm-hmm. forward and how can stories serve that? Which I think I know for me growing up, it served me in many, many years. So, how can we encourage and and support more collaborations across these two disciplines? Yeah,
2: I I think, and it's interesting because um, when I came into uh, neither on the preschool side nor on the older kids' side, where they really invested wholeheartedly in the role that research could play um, and um, that collaboration between academics and experts. I you know, was trained in the Sesame model, so I had just a, a deep-seated belief that, that that should be part of it. And I was able to affect that on the preschool side where it's always been a little more um, accepted and part of the process, certainly at Sesame. I think the fear has been on the older kids' side that once you start that the, the relying too much or involving too much academic or expert advice starts to make your product into broccoli like there's going to be, it's going to be too messagey. It's going to feel too schooly. With little kids, they don't care. They don't know. There's, They give it to them and they take it in. And the idea of learning something from watching something on television is exciting for them. Whereas the the, the traditional thinking is if, if kids, you know, six, eight, 10 year olds smell that you're trying to teach them something, they're going to say, ah, no, you know, I'm out of school. I don't want to do that. I personally have, taking it as part of my role to start to change that and to really forge the kind of mutual respect and understanding um, that we can have for each other and that writers who tend to say, don't tell me how to write, you know, like I know how to write a story for a 10 year old. Really, when you expose them to what academic research and expert consultation can do to deepen story, they're sort of surprised, but yeah. you know, you're working with a community of, of people who haven't done it typically. And so their, their initial reaction is like, I don't want some teacher telling me how to write a story, um, but you can, you know, you make progress. We, uh, I know, you know, some of the people that we work with Yalda and yourself who we really rely on when we're tackling in particular, a subject matter, whether it's adoption or divorce or something like the pandemic or, you know, when we're talking about a specific cultural group that we're not necessarily a part of, we're we're starting to make make movement and get acceptance to say, you know, we need that outside advice. We need people who are deeply knowledgeable and steep in this to help inform this to you, the creator, to make that entertaining and make that meaningful. Um, but without that, we're sort of in a vacuum. But it's it's and I you, think there's both
3: there's, ways. You know, the respect can also go from the academic to the storyteller. Mm-hmm. Having been in the storytelling business, I, you know, storytellers have an enormous ability to um, engage audiences. And there's a lot that academics offer that storytellers know intuitively. Um, mm-hmm. But there is a place for really good research, I think, and for, for counterintuitive findings and also for authenticity.
0: That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A Very special thanks to Dr. Ellen Wartella and Nancy Cantor for joining us in that conversation. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you're interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Center for Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, with special thanks to Jim Uhles for creating the interim music, the UCLA Film School, and Nir Liebenthal. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.